0: me 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 red
1: leather yellow leather red leather yellow leather what does that work on
0: i don't know i can't do it
1: i think it's the like articulators <laughs> yeah warm up. You're,
0: you're just stretching your mouth out <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah yeah okay okay all right all right what episode are we on <laughs> we are in episode eight are we really yes can you believe it wait how many episodes do most podcasts have in a year
0: i don't know but i remember reading somewhere that they said if you get past seven then you're like you you're golden like there's a lot of podcasts that start and they'll do a few episodes and then they're really so we've like and jumped that hump yeah okay we that's jump. cool jumped, we jump we jumped that hump, hump. that a- up <laughs> I feel like that's like a '90s song. This is not uh, making any hump.
1: sense at uh, all. Uh, jump
0: that? Hump. Yeah. I mean, it makes me think of uh, I don't know, like a Salt and Pepper song or something.
1: Yeah. Seriously. Okay. Um, right. we're recording. All right. Welcome to the Queer SLP Podcast.
0: We are two speech-language pathologists who identify with the LGBT plus community.
1: On each episode, we'll highlight relevant queer issues and stories from our field.
0: The Queer SLP Podcast's mission is to provide informative and pertinent content from proud and chatty SLPs. Hi, everyone. This is Hector, and my pronouns are he, him. And I'm Natalie. My pronouns are she, her. Welcome to the Queer SLP Podcast, the show to discuss LGBTQIA issues within the field of speech language pathology and beyond.
1: Today, we're going to talk about intersectionality. What is intersectionality? And why does it matter to SLPs?
0: We're going to answer these questions by defining intersectionality, talk about the origin of the word, criticisms of the term, and what it means to us. And
1: also, what can we do in our own practice to honor others' intersectionality? But first, let's check in. Natalie, how are you doing?
0: I'm doing okay. We are planning our move. We sent my little car onto a big truck today and sent her on her way to New York. Um, She's going to stay with my mom for a while, And be there for us when we go to look for a place to live.
1: Was that expensive?
0: It was pretty expensive, but not as much as I expected it to be. It was like $2,500. Oh, okay.
1: Um, I was thinking
0: like 5k. I don't
1: know. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I expected it to be kind of worse. Yeah. Yeah. So it was kind of hard to say goodbye. I call mm-hmm. her gumdrop. Um, Cause she's a little bitty red smart car. And
1: um, so <laughs> oh, cute.
0: It's yeah. the final countdown.
1: I'm going to keep saying that every episode until you do.
0: Do-do-do-do. <laughs> okay. But that's pretty much. Yeah. We're pretty much just getting ready for getting ready for the move. What about you? What's going on with you?
1: Same old, same old. Um, we're all trying to catch up with work since covid in the district and so starting therapy getting into the group with some students um, trying to find work-life balance while doing that i actually have a a zoom facetime date today
0: Ooh,
1: yeah so depending on when this podcast comes out (laughs) we'll see how it went but
0: (laughs) maybe next time we'll have to talk about how how it went like what is that
1: um yeah but it's a first date and dating in a time of COVID is awkward at best.
0: <laughs> I I can imagine that it would be because you know, there's just video chatting is just not the same.
1: Yeah. I was telling you I was cleaning my room to get ready for it, which is right. just like that's <laughs> weird, you know? But that's kind of <laughs> like, what it, what you're doing.
0: Just tidying up your room and that's that's the date.
1: That's the first impression, right? Is like how clean is your apartment? But yeah, that's it. That's it for me. Yeah, should we just jump in?
0: Let's jump in.
1: All right. So what is intersectionality? To put it briefly, it is a lens through which to see how a person interacts with the world. It is a way of seeing how various aspects of a person's identity overlap. None of us are just one identity. You can be LGBT or straight, a person of color or white, cisgender or not, Able-bodied or
0: not, the list goes on and on. Right. The originator of the term, Kimberly Crenshaw, describes it as someone standing in the middle of the intersection on a street. If they're standing in the middle of the intersection, is that person on Main Street or Lake Street? The answer is, they're on both. I'm a lesbian, but I'm also white and able-bodied and cisgender and middle class and For now, an urban dweller, soon to be a not-urban dweller, right? I'm not just one identity.
1: I think this is such a great tie into so many of our previous episodes, especially with cultural humility. You kind of have to have that cultural humility to figure out what your cultural background is and those layers in order to figure out the intersectionality between all of them. And so, agreed. I mean, for me personally... um, You know, I'm a brown person of color. I am gay. I am a male. I'm a cisgendered male. I am the baby. I grew up Catholic. You know, there's so many things that make our- I'm a
0: middle child. (laughs) Where am I? I'm Jan.
1: Right. (laughs) And so those are all, my gosh.
0: What was that? There's
1: an airplane flying ahead. Um, that's a head. <laughs> oh my God. Wait, There's an
0: that. airplane flying. In. Yeah, but <laughs> exactly. Right. So, you know, you and I have places where we can find similarities and, but then there are other parts of our identities that are, are different and therefore, you know, our experiences are different.
1: Right. So where did intersectionality come from? So as we mentioned The term intersectionality was coined in 1989 by Professor Kimberly Crenshaw to describe how race, class, gender, and other individual characteristics intersect with one another and overlap.
0: And it's interesting to note that it started off as a legal argument.
1: Right, so Dr. Crenshaw wrote a paper in the University of Chicago Legal Forum critiquing three legal cases that dealt with the issues of both racial discrimination and sex discrimination. DeGraff Reed versus General Motors, Moore versus Hughes Helicopter Incorporated, and Payne versus Travenal. In each case, Crenshaw argued that the court views on discrimination was an example of the conceptual limitations of single-issue analyses regarding how the law considers both racism and sexism. In other words, the laws seem to forget that black women are both black and female and thus subject to discrimination on the basis of both race, gender, and often a combination of the two.
0: But it's clear that this can apply to more than looking at things from a legal standpoint. You know, I think you can also look at this from a social standpoint. Right. Um, I don't know. I was thinking about how, uh, you know, quite often and. I, I haven't experienced this as much in an urban environment, but definitely like when I lived in a more rural um, environment, people would be like, oh, you would like so-and-so because they're gay, you know? Oh my gosh. Right. And, like, my, my, like, oh, you know, you would like my lesbian. And it's like, well, you know, th- people are whole people, right? So you can't just, you can't just tease out one thing. Right.
1: Oh, so, I can guarantee that that happens in urban areas too. Does it really?
0: Yeah, all I the time. I haven't had it happen to me in a long time. Um, but I went to college in a rural area and I feel like it happened a lot more. Yeah. Like there.
1: You, you, you know one gay person, you know them all.
0: Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. oh yeah. That's all it Tiny takes. little community. <laughs> yeah. But, but I, you know, I mean like that's a, that's a little different from, from what Crenshaw was describing, but I feel like it's sort of along the same vein of, um, you know, people, you people trying to just take one aspect of who you are and ignoring the rest. Right. Um, and I, I, mean, I wonder, that?
1: you know, I think it's because we have a tendency to want to just categorize people. And mm-hmm. so when you think about the term intersectionality, it just complicates things. And people are just so into individual labels that they get kind of like tunnel vision.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and it's easier to to put people in that pigeonhole. and It's leave definitely
1: there. easier because then you can just say you're here, you're here, and that's it. Um, but it, I thought it was interesting how you just, that was the the example because it kind of, Pigeonhole people like in a positive way, you know, yeah. like, like here, you guys would make a great fit because you're both part of the LGBTQ community. Um, and so thinking about how intersectionality can be a positive thing for some people, not just yeah. a discriminatory thing, you know? Um, and so,
0: or at least they benefit from it. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, don't know. I mean, I, th- I think that, you know, people, people aren't com- always coming from malicious intent. You mm-hmm. know, it it's just a, a, perhaps a lack of awareness that, that, that person has multiple points of identity points. I don't know. Anyway.
1: Guess, yeah, no, that makes sense because in order for somebody to recognize those that are, you know, discriminated against or oppressed, you know, we have to also recognize how those are in power, what makes them up, you know, because right. that's, you have to recognize that there is a balance, um, or an imbalance actually. Yeah. Yeah. So
0: So hmm. should we we talk about some criticisms of intersectionality?
1: Some say that it is somehow special treatment due to a person's minority status or that it puts a label on you to tell you how oppressed you are.
0: Critics have also said that the concept of intersectionality tells people what they're allowed to say or think. Some people feel like it makes straight white men into an enemy or hated class.
1: Conservative political commenter Ben Shapiro described intersectionality as a form of identity politics in which the value of your opinion depends on how many victim groups you belong to. At the bottom of the totem pole is a person everyone loves to hate, the straight white male.
0: So do you have any thoughts on that quote? from mr shapiro
1: i have a ton of thoughts because i think one of the biggest things that people who are so defensive about this don't realize is that there is a caste system already in place so if you feel like shaking it up puts white cis men at the bottom of the total pool that means you are acknowledging that they were previously not there right so where were they Ooh. <laughs> you know, like I, oh. think that's, you know, like oh, we're bringing that to light. So, how much awareness he has, or whomever has, when they make these sort of statements, these blanket statements of like Black Lives Matter is taking over, or you know, like we're just looking for the leftists to do X, Y, and Z. There's that piece of it that's like what you're not realizing is that there's already something in place that is being changed. Then, and what is that? Which is a white supremacist system. Yeah.
0: So by, by objecting, they're acknowledging the problem. <laughs>
1: yes. Yeah. I mean, that's what I think. But what about you? Yeah. What do you think?
0: I think that for a very long time in this country, people, white people in particular have had the benefit of not having to look, look at that caste system.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Right. And I think that part of the process of maybe, coming to that realization for some people is a feeling of being attacked they're looking like oh you know this person is playing the victim and like things are so much better than they used to be and i think for some people it's a disruption of their comfort
1: Mm -hmm. and Um, especially for those who are trying to be is a political a word i don't even know yeah i think so Okay. So they're trying to distance themselves from politics. There was this quote from the new movie, Enola Holmes. I don't know if you watched it. It's on Netflix. No, um, it has Henry Cavill who is just, mm. anyway, he, um, <laughs> he is everything, but um, there is a quote that uh, one of the black actresses says where, I guess he is like not interested in politics. He plays Sherlock Holmes. Um, and she says, of course you're not interested because it doesn't um something to the likes of like it you're not interested because you're in power you're comfortable there's nothing being shaken up for you and so of course it's boring to you to have conversations about these things because you're sitting in your privilege you know and so i think that's something that's being shaken up right now
0: yeah Um, and i and i think that's why this this kind of concept of intersectionality can feel so threatening because those who are at the top of the pyramid, I don't know. <laughs> like, right, the totem top, pole, according to this. <laughs> the, top of the totem pole. Uh, um, the, the people that have the most privilege are are having to face the cost that other people have paid for that privilege.
1: Mm. And
0: I think that you know, for some people, it, there's a guilt issue there. Right. Right, but it feels like an attack. Right. Right. I don't think they're seeing it as a way to look at you know people's identities so that we can help lift everybody up
1: I think a big part of this anti-racist work is really embracing humility not just as a cultural concept but just even just as a value to be humble and to get your ego out of the way to know that this isn't about you you may feel attacked but that is your ego speaking there. You know, the real right. issue is relate to the discrimination, people of color, specifically in this case, you know, women of color, black women, um, and how much more they are marginalized than most people. Yeah. So, yeah.
0: And it's harder for, for some people to leave that ego behind than others. And I think that's where, at least this is my opinion, but that to me, that's where this criticisms are coming from. Um, and what Mr. Shapiro said about, what did he say again? <laughs> 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 ah, right. About, like, oh, it's, you know, people are, you're the victim groups that you're part of, and, um, you know, putting the, you know, straight white male at the bottom is, you know, it's about um, having a hard time not making it about you
1: mm-hmm. and not celebrating you um yeah like it's not about you this time and that's okay it doesn't have to be so yeah that's definitely interesting to see how that that's where outside of intersectionality that's the common kind of feeling crenshaw has been quoted with the response there have always been people from the very beginning of the civil rights movement who had denounced the creation of equality rights on the grounds that it takes something away from them.
0: To Crenshaw, the most common critiques of intersectionality, that the theory represents, quote, a new caste system, are actually affirmations of the theory's fundamental truth, that individuals have individual identities that intersect in ways that impact how they are viewed, understood, and treated. Black women are both Black and women, but because they are Black women, they may endure specific forms of discrimination that black men or white women might not. This makes so much sense to me.
1: Right. And it like totally built on just of what we just said. Like, right, there is criticism, but it, there is a system that exists. And as much as we feel like we're so f- far separated from caste systems, they're very much there. <laughs> so oh, yeah, acknowledging that something is there is how we can address it that's the first step is acknowledging it right all right so how does the queer community fare when it comes to intersectionality everydayfeminism.com i'm gonna pause there's an uh, of course there's a <laughs>
0: <laughs> emergency emergency oh my gosh wow that's really loud i oh,
1: know what? it's you're far. not even that
0: close to that i'm hot not hot i'm oh. not yeah all right anyway
1: starting up. let's over. start over So how does the queer community fare when it comes to intersectionality? Everydayfeminism.com published an article entitled Five Ways the LGBTQIA Plus Movement Fails at Intersectionality. In December 2016, by Alan Palaz, Palaz?
0: Palaz? Palaz? We're sorry.
1: Palaz Lopez. Let's go through each point they make and discuss. So, first, marching for gay pride, but not marching for Black Lives Matter. Mm -hmm. Thoughts?
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I think that this is definitely an issue. Mm -hmm. I think that I'm not really sure why this is. It's hard. It's, it's hard. And I I think traditionally the gay rights movement has, even though the gay rights, a lot of the gay rights movement was started by people of color and trans people, it was co-opted by white people, specifically white men. And Mm -hmm. so I think over time it became more of a, like more of a white man sort of movement. Right. And, and it.
1: White supremacy is very insidious. And so when you think about it in terms of even like the gay rights movement, right. When you think okay. about Marsha P Johnson and how Stonewall started and how that was a black trans woman. And then now when you think about how that was kind of, like you said, co-opted by co-opted, is that the word?
0: I, I'm not sure. Sh- I think so.
1: Okay. Um, and so Someone tell
0: us if we're doing the right word and then if
1: right it right. isn't, then I'll just edit this. Um, but yeah, (laughs) but how it was kind of taken over by, you know, the, the face of the gay community, especially in the nineties and early two thousands was a cis white male. And so there is a lot of systemic racism within the LGBTQ community that is really hard to address because again, it's white supremacy and it's something that we feel like, Oh, well, you're the gay community. You should be embracing all And even the intersectionality of that. Oh, yeah. I think it's so much easier for everybody to march for themselves and the causes that they personally relate to. And so when you have Black Lives Matter, unless you are a Black Indigenous person of color, it's very hard to, you know, like, feel like that relates to you. And so, and I would even kind of wager that As a marginalized group, we're even more likely to not want to identify with other marginalized groups because we fear being, you know, that having that discrimination compounded on top of whatever we feel we're discriminated against originally. So it's kind of one of those things where it's like, oh, I'm already gay. And then, if I'm already out here doing something else, what else is gonna happen? You know, like what am I putting me at myself at risk for? Um, But that's kind of the wrong way to look at it, at least from my opinion.
0: That kind of just blew my mind a little bit, (laughs) (laughs) right? You know, it's like you're already in a marginalized group, and so you're afraid to stand up for other marginalized groups. I get, I get that. I get Mm -hmm. that as a as a fear it's very Uh, interesting right yeah yeah it's the
1: flip of like so because everyone says oh you should be able to relate but i relate to the fear as well it's very interesting to unpack that all right next one
0: all right uh asking for marriage equality but not for an end to prisons Mm. (laughs) hmm So, in my opinion, so this is coming, I didn't write this, this came from an article. Mm -hmm. In my opinion, these are two separate issues. I don't really see the connection. Um, Can you tell me the connection? I mean, I think there needs to be a major overhaul of penalization system in this country. Mm -hmm. That's not what I'm saying. But I don't understand the connection. Do you?
1: Mm, Let me think about that, because I have to unpack that. So marriage equality and the, pr- and the prisons, I guess it, mm. <laughs> I'm yeah. drawing a blank a little bit. Um, right. and maybe I mean, this is just a, in a way that again, I do fail at this, like as an LGBTQ person, like I do know, you know, like as far as like the prison system and how punitive it is and not rehabilitative, um, you know, we don't allow people to kind of have access to rights as a result of being in that system. Um, we don't want to reintroduce them. We kind of just want to forever hold things against them. Yeah, um,
0: I wonder if it has to do with maybe just looking at the legal system more, right? The whole and how it treats people, right? Because until 2015, we were not Ill- legally allowed to marry the people that we wanted to. Right. And you know, when I, when I got married the first time, uh, we went to Canada just so that we could be legally married somewhere. Cause I was, my first marriage was in 2011. I think I figured it out. Well, Okay. Well, I'll finish my thought. And then you tell me looking at that and the, the legal status of gay people. And then you look at how people of color are unequally imprisoned. Um, For things that a white person wouldn't be prisoned for, prisoned. I don't know if that's a word. Imprisoned. Imprisoned. (laughs) Um, Uh, Anyway, um, I guess maybe that's where they're coming from. Is that you know that looking at the structure of our legal system? That was the aha.
1: That was the aha moment I had was seeking legal action on behalf of the gay community. Whereas Mm -hmm. if you think about the history of the war on drugs or like. How so many people of color, specifically black men, were arrested for selling marijuana. And look at right. the marijuana industry now and how the people who benefit from the most are white men who are able to open up all these weed shops. You know, yeah. um, that's kind of what it is, I think, is this seeking out legislation specific to the gay community, but not supporting <laughs> legislation specific to improving the lives of the black community.
0: Yes, we figured it out, Hector. We
1: unpacked that during this podcast. I hope you've.
0: Yeah. <laughs> it's very exciting to me because I first read that I was like, I don't understand, but now I understand, and I, I, and I agree, right? Agree,
1: agree. Um, okay, next thing: Encour- encouraging God. <laughs> <Reader. I'm incorrigible. laughs> encouraging people to come out, but not keeping safety in mind. So this is a very high risk situation, especially in like progressive urban areas where you feel like, well, everybody should just be out. They should just be. And and I went through that. People were very much like, well, you should have just trusted us as your friends. And I'm like, I grew up in the time of Matthew Shepard, my friend, like, no, we aren't doing that.
0: (laughs) There, you know, it can be like, we've talked about before. It can be very scary every single time that you come out, you just don't know how people are going to react. And, you know, I think that it's great for us to strive for a world where everyone who is gay can come out and be comfortable with that. But that's not the reality for everybody. You know, I think about if you're a young person, it may not be, you know, you're dependent on your parents, it may not be safe for you to come out. Mm -hmm. Even though, you know, only this year, we've, we've got legal protections for, for jobs. You know, you could still get fired for your sexuality in this country.
1: I wouldn't be surprised. Like, to be honest, if the queer SLP was created last year, like would that I'm coming out episode be different because there wasn't legislation to protect people. Would we really be more critical of coming out at work because we knew, Oh crap, you could still get fired. You know, like, <laughs> Oh my gosh. Hunter. I, I <laughs> My mind is blowing again. Yeah, because I definitely would have been like, oh, shit, like somebody just got fired because our podcast told them to come out. You know,
0: like... (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um,
1: Yeah. And so I think that's the big thing with this is when it's not your risk to take... Right, it's easy to say that. It's easy to say that things are going to be X, Y, and Z. And so respecting that other people, you can show that it's a safer space by being a great ally or a great listener, but you should never be one to be like, yeah, it'll, it'll be fine. That is just insensitive. And also like putting yourself, like how you feel in the middle of it wh- or in the front, mm-hmm. which is not, that's not being cool.
0: Right. Not cool. Which leads me to our next one, which is telling LGBTQIA plus folks, it will get better, but not considering structural violence.
1: Oh, I think I read today that violence against black trans women mm-hmm. of color are, that's an epidemic right now where there's just so much undocumented crime and hate violence against them. And so you're right. Like we keep saying it gets better. The Trevor Project says it gets better. Um, and while, you know, we want it to get better, it's not a guarantee that it will, especially because there's trauma and right, trauma. Yeah,
0: it's not realistic, and you know I think in some ways it does get better as you become an adult and have more agency. But there no, you know, there's no one way that someone's life can go. Right. You know, when you think about st- something like structural violence, yeah, it's just like that's a reality for people, mm-hmm. right? And the intention of the "it gets better" slogan is to keep kids from killing themselves, right? We have a problem in the LGBT community with kids killing themselves. Right. Young people that are in the queer spectrum are more likely to commit suicide or attempt suicide. And I think that that's where that came from was just this desire to keep kids from ending their lives, but it doesn't address the complexity of the issue. Right. Right.
1: Like it gets better, but you have to do a lot of work to get there.
0: Right. It gets better, but you
1: probably need therapy and you need to unpack your own value system and your own ideas of who you are and your worth in this world. You know, like there's a lot tied to the it gets better. Um, And so I think while younger generations are growing up more and more in a community where it's always been okay to be gay or lgbtq for a lot of people that's still not the case and so to kind of put a band-aid on it to say it gets better without taking into account the very real trauma that the community faces is a disservice to that all right last one fighting for inclusive bathroom bills but not for federal protection of trans people (sighs) (laughs) So transphobia, even within the LGBTQ plus community is such a real thing. It's hard. It's very hard to, to, for people to unpack that. We all, you know, myself included, I had to unpack my transphobia. You know, I had it myself because I was just uninformed.
0: But using the power of cultural humility, you've improved your outlook.
1: Yeah. I talked to a lot of trans people. And I think that was a part of it, having the people in my life working with the trans population specifically, being so respectful and being so, um, and validating the experience, Mm -hmm. the trans experience. You know, I love how Wes said trans is beautiful. Trans is joyful. Like not just treating it as a negative, you know, learning that like, oh, it's been beautiful. Everything is beautiful, but trans specifically is beautiful, you know, like, and and right looking at it from that lens has been something I've had to go through so
0: yeah I just I need to think about this <laughs> edit because I'm at um yeah I'm just thinking thinking about Wes's post on Instagram just makes me really happy and you now mm-hmm. I have to think about negative things um
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I still uh, just love that I love it love it love it yeah um and he's right and it's I just want all people to feel like they're beautiful. The way he put it just makes me so happy. Yeah, I think that, you know, trans people are, they're in the line of fire right now.
1: Mm -hmm. I think a big (laughs) part of it too, this this number five, this argument or this statement is this idea that trans people should only get crumbs and that a bathroom and getting access to an inclusive bathroom should be enough for you versus you deserve the whole damn pie, you know? And so... Oftentimes, and I'll just say it again, with the community, the trans community is not often put in a positive light. Um, And that especially black trans women of color, you know, there's a lot going on there that we have to unpack. And so saying, yeah, you deserve access to a bathroom is it's not enough and not recognizing that, especially given the amount of violence, it's uh, it's a disservice um, and, and an insult to the trans community.
0: So I'm you know, I'm thinking with these with these points from uh, everydayfeminism.com, looking at LGBTQIA issues on the surface is not enough. You have to like look at the nuance and the the intersectionality of it. Right. Right. That people's identities don't exist in a vacuum. There's so much more at play. And in order for the LGBTQ community to progress we need to start including all these other kinds of people.
1: Right. Well, I had a very good example of that. The intersectionality piece where, I mean, you look at all of the letters within the queer community, you know, they all represent some part of the spectrum of queerness or sexuality, gender expression, you name it, it's all there. Mm -hmm. Right. And somebody asked me like, what is D and they're like, demisexual and they're like P pansexual. And they were literally told me they're like, is everybody just looking for their 15 minutes of fame? Like, why do they keep adding more letters? Right. Fame? I know. Fame? And I had to kind of like bite my tongue. Cause I didn't want to just, I wanted to come from a place of education. Right. And I was like, well, as you know, like everything is a spectrum. And so creating, you know, again, with the intersectionality, unless we honor every part of somebody we're not honoring any part of them because that's part of what makes them whole, you know? And so letting people find a space that they feel that they belong or have a sense of community, regardless of whether or not it has anything to do with like being a certain label Like that's, that's nothing to do with us. You know, like you can figure out yourself, like if someone feels that they need to identify this and they feel whole because of it, then that is, you know, valuable. But yeah, it's important that we honor that intersectionality within the queer community because ah, people still don't get it, the need for it. Um, But
0: yeah. Right. Well, and, and I think, From the queer community perspective, if we we don't honor the whole person, then we will just continue to alienate people who have every right to belong in the community, Mm -hmm. right?
1: It just makes me wonder, like, why are we even trying to be exclusive to begin with? Like we, the community was created and these letters were created so that everyone felt represented. Right. The rainbow was selected to represent so much diversity, but we want to say,
0: nope, that color doesn't
1: fit. Um,
0: You you don't fit my, my definition. So I'm going to leave you out in the cold. Right. All right. So So, what does it mean to us? Right. So let's, let's think a little bit about what this means to us as SLPs, right? Mm
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I see intersectionality as a lens through which to see the world as it is right now. So we can change it for the betterment of everyone. So what does looking at our clients through the lens of intersectionality do?
1: So we talk a lot about being culturally aware when working with clients. What is Uh. the culture of their family of origin? Socioeconomic status, language. Of course, in our field, we look at disability and how that impacts their lives. But what do we do about looking at where these all intersect and how these affect their lives and how we approach therapy from multiple directions? It doesn't seem like it would work to look at one piece of the puzzle.
0: For example, to be non binary and a person of color in an urban environment. Will be different from a non-binary person of color in a rural environment. Being aware of all those pieces of that that person's life will can give you. You'll know that that's different, right? Mm-hmm. Um, being a non non-binary person of color with a disability versus non-binary person of color without a disability. There's there are as many iterations of this as there are people, really. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The list goes on. To work with a person and only look at the disability part or the non-binary part or the person of color part is missing the whole picture. So, and they can be damaging to that person and makes her therapy less effective. What really stresses me out about this very vulnerable here is feeling like I need to understand the culture of every single person. So, you know, white, cis, able-bodied, lesbian. You know, I can understand those things. You know, I can understand a lot of different things that are just from my own perspective, but I couldn't tell you what the life of an immigrant is like or the life of a person who comes from a socioeconomic status that's different from my own. I think I put a lot of pressure on myself to like, Oh, well, you know, if I'm going to treat that person properly, I need to know exactly what that's like. And I don't know if I can.
1: Right. Well, I think there's that idea again, where we often as SLPs or any type of professional run into that idea that we're going to reach a level of competency and that is just not part of the cultural competency framework, right? Like there's not, there is not a mastery that you're going to reach because every person is gonna come at you with a different cultural makeup, right? And so being able to, I think the big picture takeaway would be to have the humility to mm-hmm. and grace for yourself to say, I don't have to understand or even be aware of the experience to know that an experience exists that's mm-hmm. different from my own. And so just honoring that when people say this is X, Y, and Z and just kind of taking that at heart, like or taking that at face value as, right. oh, that's that's what impacts you, you know? And if you need to dig a little bit more, especially if you're like evaluating, you should probably do that, you know, if you're, because you're not evaluating a hundred people at once, you're evaluating one person. And if in that time you're like, oh, well, before I make this decision to, you know, decide where they're at um, disability wise, um, or if they even have a disability, you know, what what are these pieces that I should look at?
0: getting into that sort of being open and the cultural humility, what can we do as SLPs when we're working with maybe working with clients that have different backgrounds than our own? Mm -hmm. What what do you think? Um,
1: So first we can encourage patients to be as open as they feel comfortable. So to do that, you have to be nonjudgmental and not make assumptions about someone. You can't always see someone's intersectionality it isn't always very obvious. And I love this because at the beginning of the year, there was a training that we did and it talked about how we view parents. There's a difference between having the capacity, the capacity to provide for your child versus the means to provide for your child. Every parent has the capacity, but whether or not they have access to the means is a huge piece of how we can take into account intersectionality to reserve judgment for parents who might not be, quote, showing up the way that other parents are right. capable of doing so.
0: Yeah, not every parent has the means to come to every parent-teacher night or to be at an IP meeting. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that they care about their child any less.
1: I was just saying, even now, like during virtual therapy sessions, you know, there are parents that have to work. And as much as we want them to show up for our sessions, it's just not possible, especially for parents who have multiple kids with limited internet bandwidth and terrible technology. They don't have it. And so giving them grace to kind of not have to show up to meet our expectations is something that um, we can do as professionals.
0: Yeah, you just, you never know what circumstances someone coming from. And I like to think that everyone is doing the best they can with the cards that they're dealt. And it may not look the way that, that you think it should look. Or you might not even know at all what that person is going through. I like that idea. Mm-hmm. Um, just coming to that person without judgment.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, and oh, the next one, I think goes back to uh, some stuff that we've talked about in the past about having visuals out and visible in your area, in in your work area that lets them know that they can be open with you. You know, do you have different kinds of people represented in your visual materials?
1: Mm -hmm. I remember specifically when 2016, when Trump first got um, into office, Mm -hmm. there was a lot of, you know, fear from our students about being deported um, uh, and there was a lot of signage that says that you know like we accept all students you are safe here regardless of your status and so again another form outside of the lgbtq plus community but a way that we can show that people are safe is by having sort that those sorts of visuals or even just having different languages available <laughs> that's another right? way to be visible.
0: It's coming to the table with a uh, obvious welcome message.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> we'll figure out know. how to say that.
0: <laughs> oh man! Welcome, Here, I, welcome message. <laughs> oh, a welcome message. I just uh, uh moving's hard. Yep. <laughs> Moving while also planning a wedding. My uh-huh. brain is full. Um, <laughs> Anyway, yeah, it's, by having visuals out and about it makes people feel welcome. It makes people feel like, you know, oh, this part of myself is welcome and this part of myself is welcome And this. you know, I think that's where that diversity of of materials and and making sure that everything looks welcoming. I remember one school that I worked in, there was a fifth grade teacher who just had every single type of person you could ever imagine on her wall. It was just like amazing. And her bookshelf was just filled with all different sizes and shapes and colors of people. And it was incredible. And I just thought, you know, anybody, any kid could walk into this room and see themselves represented. That matters. right? What, what you see around you, it sets the tone.
1: That's why there's like a hashtag visibility matters. it's real so next one be prepared to switch gears if you need to and don't take things personally if you get something wrong and someone corrects you you're human just be ready to do better i did that today where i mistakenly used the incorrect pronouns on an email Uh um and i had no idea and so Um, someone just quickly emailed me and said, Oh, these are the correct pronouns. And I was like, Oh, thanks for the heads up. And I just went on, you know, and I corrected myself. And so, you know, having the, just the humility, to just kind of own up to it as a, as a human mistake, they go, I'm not going to make that mistake again. It's one thing if you make continuous mistakes and refuse to learn, that's one thing personally have been on the recipient of that. It's one of those things where if you're willing to learn, it's going to be okay.
0: Well, and maybe that, you know, getting back to what I was saying earlier about my anxiety over having to know everything, you know, maybe that this is a good suggestion for me. I'm a human being. There's no way that I can really know everything and just be open to the experience of learning and being open to change. Right. Which I think we say a lot on this podcast. This is
1: kind of like just a continuous reminder that it's okay. (laughs) (laughs) And that you don't have to be perfect. Um, I added this last one. You can read it.
0: Okay. Be humble and remember that just because you worked with the quote disabled population, that does not necessarily mean you are working with the most vulnerable populations.
1: Right. So like the intersectionality of students, of clients, disability is one part of that. If you look at how being a quote disabled person of color versus a disabled white person, we evaluate that differently. We look at that as, you know, we don't even label the same. Uh, we will, <laughs> we're more likely to call child of color, a black boy of color with behavior problems as oppositional defiant, as opposed to calling a white child with behavior problems as misunderstood with mental health issues we have that and that is well documented and so mm-hmm. especially with ours because we evaluate pragmatics so right. we need to look at how we look at that intersectionality and and maybe even value system white kids with our tick problems versus black kids or black students of black children <laughs> with other more impacted disabilities where is our role with that as
0: speech therapists? Right.
1: Who do we advocate for more who do we yeah. prioritize
0: That's not a very easy question to answer.
1: It's not because uh, we have to really
0: yeah and and considering that not not every intersection of a person's life is is obvious some kids hide their disabilities very well mm-hmm. you might not know that your student is queer right they might not feel safe to share share that with you right. How does that? How does that impact our therapy? I mean, again, thinking about pragmatics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How is it different for a queer kid? I don't like evaluating pragmatics because <laughs> it's, it's really hard.
1: Well, because there's no like any standardized measure is bullshit, you know. <laughs> so
0: like it's it's hard it's you can't standardize it really and i think that especially when it comes to intersectionality the, the pragmatics can be a huge thing yeah cuz what you see from your perspective as like you know like we we're talking about about like bad behavior might not be bad behavior for that person
1: right oh
0: well, <laughs> pragmatics
1: is hard right so here is some homework you can do. So you can visit Vox.com, that's V-O-X.com, and read The Intersectionality Wars by Jane Coaston.
0: You can also hop on over to YouTube, and Kimberly Crenshaw has a TED Talk called The Urgency of Intersectionality.
1: And finally, Paula Stone Winters has a YouTube video called I've Lived as a Man and a Woman, Here's what I learned. Thanks for tuning into The Queer SLP. On today's episode, you learned about intersectionality, some concepts, and what it means to us, and also some things you can do as a professional.
0: Please rate, review, subscribe anywhere where you're listening to podcasts. Tell your friends.
1: We are located on Instagram and Facebook at The Queer SLP, and our website is thequeerslp.com. Come back next week for another Proud Professional episode. Bye.